May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Well, happy St Nicholas Day for Thursday. That uh, great day when traditionally children would gather around the Bishop St Nicholas and uh, they would receive their presents. How times have changed. Or they'd get a lump of coal if they'd been bad. So either a little bag of, of uh, nuts and, and fruit if they've been good or a lump of coal if they've been bad. Um, so Nicholas has been in the news a little bit lately, hasn't he? Uh, when Hannah Kukul appeared in Nelson rather than the European Santa. And, uh, well, there's been a lot of discussion about that, uh, a lot of outrage, claims of devastated children, which I'm not going to talk about, but um, I'm not sure if the children were so devastated as the parents. And Duncan Garner and Don Brash had to jump in uh, with all their claims that Santa Claus is always white. And he's always in red. Well, he was in red. And etc, etc. And whether they sparked it or whether that was already going, there was, if you were reading social media, there was just the truckload of the most vile, racist spew you could imagine. It was horrific. The underbelly of our country was once again exposed. Trump's America is alive and well in, in Aotearoa. People just wanted the traditional Santa, they said. And Santa is like this guy. So he's in red, he's got a big white beard, he's jolly and fat, he's got a funny hat, and he goes, ho, 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 that's all people wanted. Well, it does depend on what you mean by the traditional centre. So, I mean, that is the traditional secular centre that lots of people blame Coca-Cola for. I blame Coca-Cola for it. But actually, in America... They just used what had become the standard secular centre and used it for their advertising campaign. So we can't put it all on Coca-Cola, sadly. Although it's quite fun doing that. <laughs> but here's another traditional centre. This is an icon of St Nicholas, well known for uh, rescuing girls who were in poverty and paying their dowry with three little bags of gold. There were three girls which he dropped down the chimney, hence the story of Santa Claus climbing down chimneys, and that's why pawnbrokers have three little bags of gold as they're on their signs, comes from St Nicholas, um, rescuing them from a life of prostitution. And many other stories, including at the Council of Nicaea, uh, he's supposed to have punched Arius, the Council of Nicaea was about Arianism, who said that Christ was not God, but the highest of all created beings, not human, but the highest of all created beings. And St. Nicholas is supposed to have punched him on the nose. That's another apocryphal story, apparently. Probably didn't punch him on the nose, but probably felt like it. Uh, so St. Nicholas is also one of the champions of uh, the, what we now call the Orthodox Trinitarian faith. So here he is, and he's not wearing red. It's kind of red. He looks like a bishop. Uh, he doesn't have a big white beard, and he's not white. Not at all. So Nicholas actually came from the Turkish area, so, you know, well, there was a long time in Australian policy where he would definitely not have been defined as white. To be white, you had to come from Britain or Northern Europe. Um, anyone else, they were not white. French, Italians, uh, you know, the Greeks, 
not white. They had to change the law to let them in at the end of the Second World War. So is it? this is my personal favourite. Not only was he not white, he wasn't even human. He was a Klingon, if you're a Star Trek fan. But then we do have the more traditional ones, and he's got a more white beard. But still, and a bit more red. And here he is. Uh, so St. Nicholas does make an appearance, and in the German and Dutch traditions, um, on, on December the 6th, I had to dress up as St. Nicholas for a German group about 20 years ago and turn up, and um, the white beard and the long hair by that point had become quite important. Um, but here he is in green. So Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas, uh, I guess the article I read said is a it's not a fixed, sort of fixed thing. It's a thing that has changed and moved over the centuries, and it continues to change and morph and move as people kind of take the story of Saint Nicholas and apply it to their culture. But here he was still a bishop. And actually, as I looked at that, and then I looked at Hannah Poko down in, uh, down in Nelson, I thought, actually, he has a lot more in common with the older traditions of St. Nicholas than our current secular Santa Claus. Like, he does have a cope, and he does have a pastoral staff. He looks much more Episcopal than our secular Santa Claus. So it's an interesting thing. What does Santa Claus what is Santa Claus really about? Now, one of the funniest comments I read on Facebook, or no, it was actually in a comment on one of the articles, was a person who wrote, It's not Maori who are under attack, it's Christianity. And I wept, I laughed so hard. It was hilarious. It was so wrong, and yet at the same time so right, but not in any way that the person who wrote it ever thought that it was right. Because actually, it's not Hanakoko who is putting, who is attacking Christianity. It is the secular Santa who has taken this great Christian story and turned it into this weird man who lives on the North Pole and who comes around giving presents at Christmas and has been become an icon of of um, consumerism. Like we take our children who not always are happy about being dumped on the knee of this strange man red, with a white beard and wearing red. And if you go and sit in shopping malls, you can see lots of terrified children who have been placed there by their parents or grandparents. And they have to tell them what they would like in the hope that they will get that. And then the pressure's on the parents or the grandparents to deliver. I mean, that's apparently what Christmas has become. So what is Christmas about, if Christmas isn't about those kinds of things? Well, Christmas, for us, uh, starts way back last week in Advent. And we are very fortunate to have Advent, which is a time of, as it says up there, can't actually read that, preparing for the coming of our Saviour, getting ready for Christmas. And we often think about Advent being a time of getting ready for Christmas. Lent is about getting ready for Easter. Advent is about getting ready for Christmas. But actually, I would say that if we were to summarise Advent down into one comment, it would be that Advent reminds us that Christmas is important, but it's not the point. 
So we're actually looking past Christmas, through Christmas and beyond. Christmas is important, but it's not the point. Over the last week, um, I have started listening to a podcast um, talking about the readings uh, that are coming up. It's a good way of um, thinking about them as I drive around. And um, this week, one of the guys, Matt Skinner, talked about uh, Advent and what Advent was about. And he said it's about preparing for the Christ of history. So that's the Christ who is born on Christmas Day. But more than that, the whole of the gospel story, holding the Christmas story within the whole of the gospel story. He said it's also about preparing for the Christ of mystery, which is the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ alive and well and at work in the world today. And hearing the invitation to join in that ongoing work. What does that look like? Well, then we go back to the Christ of history. And we see there what the work of God looks like in the life of Christ. And finally, Advent is about preparing for and looking for the Christ in majesty. When all that God hopes for comes to fruition. When the reign of God, the reign of God's hospitality, the reign of God's compassion and justice, when the reign of God's generosity is fulfilled when creation is renewed and humanity is restored. So Advent is a lot more than just Christmas. Christmas is important, but it's not the point. And we have these four themes. Well, actually, there's a whole lot of different groups of four things you can do during Advent, but we're doing the kind of peace, which is up there on the wall, just to remind us. And uh, hope this week. And so this week we look at this big, big theme of hope. What is hope? And that kind of raises all kinds of big questions like, well, what do we hope for? And, and where do we look for the fulfillment of our hopes? And what does God hope for? And how do we fit into what God hopes for? And in all of that we have the wonderful Gospel of Luke. The subversive gospel, a gospel of protest. We often don't read Luke as a gospel of protest, but it's all the way through. Last week we were choosing some music and we have Mary's song coming up. And I said, oh, let's have this uh, song, which is a song of pro uh, praise and protest. And Malcolm said, protest? How is Mary's song a, a song of protest? And I went, well... Just read the words, and you might get past the first line where it's all about my soul magnifies the Lord, and then read the lines after that. They are all lines of protest about the status quo and what God wants instead. And those themes of protest and subversion are all through Luke's Gospel. His salvation, which we begin to hear about today, is not about the status quo. And in fact, we've started today's reading with John the Baptist by a whole list of historical characters who historically don't quite, like if you did a Venn diagram, there'd be a wee gap in the middle where they don't quite all meet up, but it kind of gives you a, a hint of where the story was being set. And we usually just read these as historical markers. You know, this story happened when these guys were around. That's it. That's all we need to worry about. We move on with the story. But there's a number of commentators that say, 
Like, if John really wasn't, uh, Luke wasn't that interested in just historical markers. He wasn't just trying to place the story somewhere. He begins by naming where people placed their hope. And where did they place their hope? Well, they placed it in the emperor, Tiberius, the successor to Augustus. And Augustus had ended years of civil war. He'd been one of the warring generals in that civil war. And he had brought peace and stability to the Roman Empire. He was the son of peace. Oh, where have we heard that term referred to? People use that to Jesus. See, Luke and Paul are very subversive. They take these imperial titles and they apply them to Jesus. And we go, oh, that's a nice title. We must have got that from the Bible. Mm-mm-mm. They took them from the emperor. Very subversive stuff. So Tiberius is the main guy. All power rests in him. All hope for peace and prosperity rests in him. Hope rests in him. And then all those other characters that are listed, people put their hope in them, but all of them, they are in their place because Tiberius said they could be in their place. None of them are there because of their own right. Tiberius gave them permission to be there. And Herod, eventually Tiberius has had enough of him and he'll get kicked out and he'll spend the last of his days in exile in Gaul. And Annas and What's really interesting is that even Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, are in that list. The people in charge of the temple, the successors to the Maccabean revolt, which we'll get back to shortly. Even they are there because Tiberius says they can be there. And even even they have bought into this Roman hope. They are vassals of Roman hope. And then Luke talks about John. Not as during this time there was John, but in contrast to these people with their hope centered on Rome, there was John who preached and offered a baptism of repentance. Now often we think about this baptism of repentance as an individual act of going down and seeing John and being baptized and it was radical and it was new was sort of radical, was sort of new, although there were baptisms around at the time. The difference for John's baptism was that he baptized. Normally in a baptism you would baptize yourself, you would wash yourself. But in these ones, John was the one dunking people. But in all of those baptisms, when you were baptized, it wasn't about your individual state. It was always about joining a community joining a group of people. It was a joining right. And so in this case, they were joining well, a community of protest, a community of subversion, a community that stood outside of the hope that was placed in Tiberius and Herod and his brothers and Annas and Caiaphas. This was a community that stood for a different way, God's way. It was a subversive protest movement that they were joining. Which kind of took me back to Hanakoko down in Nelson. And 
I think one of the reasons people were so upset with him was we're used to our Santa who is all about consumerism and we understand what that Santa was about. But this one, what is he about? What does he stand for? And I think partly, maybe, he stands for Manakitanga and Fanongatanga and Afinatanga, kind of a whole different way of understanding the Santa story. And people were too uncomfortable with that. It was a subversive Santa. And as we listen to that story of John the Baptist and his community, his subversive protest community that he was beginning with these protests, with these baptisms, maybe, maybe I should have been a lot more vocal in my support, my support of this subversive Santa down in, down in Nelson. Because actually, in terms of the Christian tradition, that Santa was much more closely linked with Luke's gospel than the secular Santa ever will be. Just a thought. Hope. So hope, then John says, resides in God. Hope in the song of the Zechariah resides in God. Um, in, in that podcast, it was an interesting little interplay because uh, one of the people said, oh man, another, another psalm where we don't have a psalm. And the Old Testament person said, um, yeah, there are psalms all through the Bible. Some of them are in the book of Psalms, but the rest of them are scattered elsewhere. And today we're just having a psalm that comes from the New Testament. It's still a psalm. It's just not in the book of Psalms. So we tend to think about psalms being a thing that's in the book of Psalms. But actually psalm is a genre of biblical writing. And the song of Zechariah is a psalm. It just happens to be in Luke's gospel. So... Uh, next week we're going to have a psalm from the book of Isaiah and then we go back to Luke's gospel and the last week we will have a psalm that we know well. We call it the Magnificat, Mary's songs, Mary's song of protest. So all of them are psalms, they're just not in the book of psalms. Those ones are linked to David, the other ones are linked to other people. So we had Zechariah's uh, psalm about hope. And his son's place in that hope. And it raises the question for us, well, where do we fit into God's vision? Where do we fit into what God hopes for? How do we live that out? We live in a world where, well, climate change experts are telling us we're running out of time. We have Trump's America. We have nationalism rising its head all around the world. Uh, we have Brexit looming, which is who knows how that's going to pan out. Uh, how is all of this, where is hope in all of this, and how do we offer hope in all of that? What is our place? What is our role? And one of the quotes that I really like in all of this is by a guy called Jim Wallace, and I talk about him in the pew sheet, uh, who was the founder of the Sojourners, Sojourners uh, community in Washington. Uh, he's an evangelical, but he's a strong advocate for social justice. He's written a lot about that. He's spoken a lot about that. Uh, and he was uh, Barack Obama's spiritual advisor while Barack Obama was president. So, um, kind of a big name. And he talks about hope being believing in spite of the evidence and watching the evidence change. So what does that look like? What does that mean? So I want to talk about two stories that kind of give an example of that. And the first is Robben Island in South Africa. During the apartheid regime, 
most of the leadership of the ANC were arrested and they were sent to Robben Island, which is a little prison island off the coast of Cape Town. And it's essentially always, always been a prison island. There's no water on that island, so the only way you can live there is if people bring water to you. And it's like Alcatraz, really dangerous to swim. Like, you can see Cape Town. It's just over there, but the currents and the water and the, the fish that swim in there all make it quite dangerous to try to swim back to Cape Town. Your chances of making it aren't very high. And so uh, Robben Island is this pretty barren place. The first prisoners that were put there were in the um, late 1500s, early 1600s, when some Portuguese sailors were dropped off there because they'd been a little bit too mischievous on their boat. And so the captain paused briefly, dumped them on Robben Island and carried on. They were pretty stuffed, actually, because they had no water. But it has been a prison for a long time. And when it was a maximum security prison and when the ANC people were put out there, initially they were put into uh, the, high, the uh, maximum security area, but in the first months, years that they were there, they built their own new maximum security prison. And it was supposed to be a work prison. It was supposed to break the, <coughs> the, the kind of resolve of the ANC leadership and it was supposed to break the ANC. And when people like Nelson Mandela got there, uh, and they were told what kind of place this was. It was a prison. It was going to be hard. They were not to enjoy it. Those people like Nelson Mandela said, this is not a prison. This is a university. What? They were living in, in harsh conditions once the maximum security prison was built. They were working lime quarries, which led to all sorts of health issues later in their lives. And yet, still, they said, this is not a prison. This is a university. And those who were educated then set about to teach those who were not educated how to read and write. Secretly, if they were caught, they were, put, they were in trouble. And they talked about political strategy in the evenings. They educated each other. In the end, uh, the government, the South African government, knew that they couldn't beat it. The, the people were learning to read and write. Books were being smuggled in. Uh, eventually, university courses were run. And were not run, but people did university courses by uh, extramural from Europe, paid for by uh, German Christians. Uh, a number of the prisoners there did law degrees. Uh, the person who became the first, I think it's Attorney General, did his... Um, law degree while he was in Robben Island. It became a university where Nelson Mandela said apartheid will fall and when it falls we need to have people capable of running this country who have done the training, who have done the qualifications, who can step into those roles and lead this properly and we need to do that training here. We have, like most of the leadership of the ANC gathered here Let's prepare for when apartheid falls and be ready for that day. Now, when they began that, well, they believed, despite of the evidence. But actually, as time went on, they watched the evidence change around them. It's an amazing story. If you ever get the chance to go to Robben Island, I encourage you to do that. It's also an interesting experience just going on the ferry out there. It wasn't a particularly choppy day the day that I went, but... There are all these 
uh, black African school children, and Europeans as well. They really surprised me. But the black Africans clearly had been from land, and this was the first time they'd been on a boat, and they were all very excited. And the cabin I was in was very full, and then we got out of the harbour, and it emptied, woof, as all these people, including the Europeans I was sitting with, raced outside because they couldn't stand it. And I went, never come to New Zealand, never do the Cook Strait, you will die. <laughs> so the second story I want to talk about is Hanukkah, which comes from the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucids. So uh, I was thinking as we listened to uh, our First Testament reading today, uh, which comes from the Apocrypha, uh, what a hard time those guys had, really. They... They were their own independent kingdoms, and then the southern kingdom watched the northern kingdom just get obliterated, lost in history. And then eventually uh, the Babylonians came and took them over and took their leadership off in exile. And then the Persians came and they were allowed to come home, and some of them did come home. But they were still vassals under the Persian Empire. And then eventually Alexander the Great came across and defeated the Persians, and then they were under the Greeks, and then Alexander died, and his empire was divided up between his generals. And Seleucid took over the area of Palestine and Syria. And the Seleucids were not the nicest of people, and uh, they were very anti-Semitic. They took over the, the temple. They, uh, uh, In one of our readings, I can't remember the actual, actual phrase, but it's... Um, like they, they took out, they put in all Greek gods through the temple. They sacrificed to the Greek gods. Um, it was a, a terrible time for the Jews. And eventually Judas Maccabeus led a revolt. And they rose up and they defeated the Seleucids. And they cleared out the temple. And when they finished clearing out the temple, so this is in about a hundred and something. Um, and then they were an independent state for a while. But there was kind of fighting and fighting between... so. The Maccabeans became the high priests, and so Annas and Caiaphas are descendants of Judas Maccabeus and his brothers. But there was infighting between their brothers, between some of their descendants, and one of them invited the Romans to fight on their side. And the Romans came in and said, we like this place, it's on an important trade route, we'll take over, thank you very much. So, not the best decision they ever made. So, there's a potted history of the last bit of uh, the Jewish kingdoms. But when they cleared out the temple, within the temple and the Holy of Holies, there was a, the eternal light. Kind of like our red light here, because people turn, keep turning our eternal light off. And um, in it, like ours used to have, was oil. And it was somebody's job to make sure that there was always enough oil so that the flame never went out. And that flame represented the divine presence, the Shekinah, the, the presence of God within that place. But when they had cleaned out the temple and went to relight it, this, this, uh, this light, there was only a spoonful of oil. And there was no more oil to be had anywhere. And they kind of said, what shall we do? And they said, well, we will light it and we will send somebody off to find oil. So they lit the flame. And eight days later, the person returned with the oil. And the flame burned for eight days with this spoonful of oil in the lamp. And so each year at this time, Jews remember that event at Hanukkah. 
So they have the eight days of Hanukkah. And on Friday night, as part of our religious diversity class, Todd, who's uh, Nakowitz, who's our, our tutor with the religious diversity course, is a Jew, and he said, at home, we would light the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah candles. And they kind of remind me of our Advent candles, really. So they, the first night, they write the, light the first one. The second night, they write, light the second one. And there's a special prayer of blessing, which they pray for each candle. And the candles are all on the same line, so we could, I could have just lined up eight, the eight candles along here and put one candle behind. And if you look carefully, there's, well, you can't actually see the one that's behind because they're holding it. There's a ninth candle, which they is always off to one side or behind and higher, and that is the slave or servant candle. It's simply the candle they use to light the other eight candles. Uh, and it's about remembering this event and remembering God's providence that despite the evidence that they didn't have enough oil they lit the candles and believed in hope and they watched the evidence change around them and I thought about our Advent candles and uh, so today is the 8th day of Hanukkah so Jews around the world tonight will at sundown light all 8 candles so as we light our candles, what is, the, what is it that we hope for? What is it we believe in? What is it that we will live out despite the evidence? What subversive protest are we being invited into this Advent as we think about the hope that resides in God? What is it we are being invited into as we think about the Christ of history and the Christ of mystery, and the Christ in majesty. Remembering that Christmas is important, but it's not the point. So spend a moment thinking about that, and then we will have some prayers.